This is the fourth week in, uh, in Advent, and, uh, and each week of Advent is symbolized in four simple words. There is hope, there is peace, there is joy, and there is love. And the season of Advent is really about us acknowledging the anticipation that all of us hold in our hearts for these things. Here's what's interesting about each one of those themes. All of them are universal longings that people have. All people everywhere long for those things. All of us hold out for hope. All of us pursue peace. All of us want to experience peace. All of us want joy in our life. And every one of us wants to be loved and actually love other people. There's something inside of us that longs for this. And, and the whole idea of the Advent season and why we talk about the anticipation and the longing and why we light candles and think about this is that we want to connect that longing that we have universally to Jesus being the fulfillment of that longing. That's the whole idea, that if all of us long for this and there's all these expressions of this, then where will we experience fulfillment? And that fulfillment is found in Jesus. And so in this season, we talk about these things and we bring our attention to the reality that Jesus does that for us. So today, we're going to talk about love. And, uh, and love is this universal term that actually is incredibly complicated, right? Love is an incredibly complicated word for us. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. I, no, I don't. Sorry, I won't. Sorry, some of you get that one. Uh, certain generation, right? But how, how do we experience love? How do you love particular people? There, there are books written about different kinds of love languages. There's so much about love that in 35 minutes I can't cover all of it. Um, but there is something that I do know about love that I want to talk about today. And, and just let me explain this. Um, in fact, I noticed something. I started looking around uh, the last couple of weeks. I started noticing something uh, that's very unique to this, this culture here, this Portland, Beaverton culture. I've noticed that... Um, there is an unusual, like, propensity for people to represent themselves and their beliefs in a, in a two-and-a-half by eight-inch sticker on their cars. We live in the land of unusual bumper stickers. Are, are you noticing this? Is this? You guys already know this. You've been living in it. For me, I'm coming into this. This is a new thing. But um, I've been driving around. I've been noticing some pretty interesting things. I, I saw one. Uh, I was sitting at a light, and the car in front of me said this. Plant-based. I was like, okay, thank you. Thanks for letting me know, you driver in front of me. It's good for me to know that you have a plant-based diet. That's awesome. Thank you for announcing that to the world. Um, I also saw this one, 100% vegan. I sat there for a while. I was looking and I thought, can you be anything but 100% vegan? Because if you can, I'd like one that says this. That's me, you know. I'm like 52% vegan. I'm, you know, 48% meat. That's me right there, right? So... Kind of interesting thing. Uh, I was at the airport last week. I went to go pick up Sherry from the airport, and I was sitting at this light, and I noticed uh, there was the car in front of me. Not, not, not kidding. I recommend kale. I am not exaggerating. I literally looked. I was like, I like kale, by the way. Now, nothing against kale. I just never thought about becoming a personal advertiser for kale, right? Kale. It's the superfood, right? Like, I don't, like, what possesses you to do this? Uh, Sherry and I went to Ikea. Has anyone been to the human hamster wheel called Ikea? Anyone been there before? <clears throat> so we're walking around Ikea, and I see this guy. He's gone further than a bumper sticker. He's bought a shirt off of Etsy, 20 bucks. I looked it up. I found it. It literally said these three words, one less car. Like, he's walking around like, I represent one less car. I looked it up because I was like, what is this? Is this some sort of campaign? It's basically just cyclists, which I, I, I'm a cyclist, but them saying, I represent one less car on the road. After I looked it up, I just thought to myself, how'd that guy get his stuff home from Ikea? <laughs> right? like, 
walking around Ikea, like buying stuff, you like put on your handlebars, like, hold on, babe, we're going for a ride, right? Just... So, so this whole thing is I'm driving around. By the way, you can tell I spend way too much time alone these days. Uh, but I was driving around, you know, I was just thinking about, you know, we want to be known for things. You know, I've got a sticker of some mountains and stuff on my truck, you know, just to send a message like I'm an outdoors person, you know. And we all do this sort of thing. But then I just wonder, what are we really known for? What are we really known for? And, and specifically, this relates to love. And some of you see where I'm going with this. But there's this, there's this question that gets answered by Jesus when he's talking to his disciples. In John 13, 34, he says this to them about what they, what we should be known for. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. And then verse 35 is the kicker. He says, by this, everyone will know that you are plant-based. No, that you are my disciples if you love one another. People are going to know, like, so listen, I know this might sound trite, and you go, isn't this a little Sunday school? But it's only trite if it was actually true of us. Are we really known for love? I'm afraid for a lot of us, we know the verse, we're kind of familiar with this idea that, yeah, we should be known about the, by this, but are we really known for our love? Do people in our community, do they see us responding to needs and crisis? Do they see us interacting with each other? And there's that moment where they're just like, oh, you must be a Jesus follower because there's no other explanation for the amount of love you are extending to the people around you than that. Than that. Like, there's no explanation. Is that what we're known for? Do people see us and we so exude love that they can't help but recognize you must be a follower of Jesus because those people are incredibly loving. They're known for their love. Is that what people see? I'm not sure that's as true as it, as it should be. And as I wrestle with that reality, the, the one major conclusion that I come to is this. It's this. How can we be known for something if we haven't experienced that something ourselves? Maybe the reason that you and I aren't known for being incredibly loving towards each other and our community around us is maybe we're, we still haven't experienced love ourselves, the kind of transformative love that makes us into those kind of loving people. Maybe that's the explanation. How can we offer something if we haven't received it? Um, let me just talk about this for a few minutes. In fact, I'm going to just give you a funny example. Um, years ago, one of my daughters, if I... If you, if you went to my house the last decade and you went into my bedroom, um, sometimes behind my pillow because one of my girls would stash it there, sometimes under my bed, sometimes on the nightstand or on the little shelf in the lower part of my nightstand, it's a very unusual thing. It was a beanie baby, a little green octopus beanie baby. And you might think it's misplaced there, but for like a decade, that beanie baby just sort of hung around in that place in, in my bedroom. And, and the reason that I, it... It was there is that one year for Christmas, one of my girls, um, who didn't have the resources to buy dad a gift yet, but knew it was like probably the right thing to do, went into her bedroom, and that was her, Octi was its name, Octi was her favorite beanie baby, and she wrapped it up, and when I opened up the present, I saw that she had given me her favorite thing. So it seems strange to have an octopus underneath your pillow. I understand this, right? 
But we do this in all sorts of other ways, don't we? We have little pictures in our offices or maybe hanging out in some place in our house. Some of us have jewelry passed down from another person. We have all sorts of things, objects in our life, that if someone were to walk into our life, they don't make any sense at all, right? Someone would go, what's the deal with that? But you know there's a story connected to it, right? There's a person connected to it. There's something deeper going on with that, that this physical thing, whatever it is, a little beanie baby octopus isn't about a beanie baby octopus. It's about something else, right? This thing is actually about that thing, that there's this small thing, but it's actually about this big thing. We do that in so many different ways, and I believe that principle applies to love. We all know about love, but is this thing here maybe about something bigger? Is this thing that we're dealing with on one level really about something that's happening on another level? Love is so universal. Even as children, this is interesting, as kids, we start talking about love. Um, Some of you remember this, the recess when you were a kid. When um, Brad and Sherry were kissing in the tree, right? K-I-S-S-I-N-G. First comes what? Then comes marriage. You ever thought about the, the fact that kids are always saying, first comes love. Why does love come first? First comes love. Why does love come first? Maybe love comes first for a reason. You ever thought about that? That there's something inside of us that says love is like this primal thing that we have to encounter and experience. By the way, love is just a, love is a funny thing. Love is a, a word. Just as a word, it's a strange thing. Um, it seems like there's more to love than just the word love. For example, um, I love my wife, but I also really love cheese. <laughs> like, I go to the grocery store, and there's all that cheese, you know? Like, it's like, every grocery store down here has really amazing cheese, and I love cheese. I also love my wife. Is that the same thing? Like, do I feel the same way about cheese that I feel about my wife? Now, don't ask my wife that question. because, but, but the answer is no, right? They're two different kinds of things. All in one word, love. So, so love is this incredibly concept, incredibly complex concept for us. And it's so much deeper than we think. And our desire is to really know it. Our desire, like we have this sense that like, there's, a, there's a greater love. There's a deeper love. There's a Steve Winwood higher love, right? There's something, right? In fact, the great theologian Bono, he said this. He said, uh, he said, love, rescue me. Come forth and speak to me. Raise me up and don't let me fall. No man is my enemy. My own hands imprison me. Love, rescue me, right? We all want to know love. In fact, we know that there is a power in love. There is something that love can do. We even heard it in the video this morning that there is a power that love has over people. It is universal, but the question is, do we actually experience it universally? We search and we look and we try to understand and then we settle and then, and then we, we find ourselves not really settling. Why is that? What is going on inside of humanity that something we want to know and experience can be so difficult to grasp and understand? Could it be that this, that this thing we do with love, the way we talk about it, the way we think about it, could it be that this is actually about that? Could it be about something bigger? Um, Had you witnessed me as an adolescent, um, you would have assessed my romantic inclinations as um, feeble and thought I was severely romantically challenged. Um, When I was in, in junior high and high school, I didn't go to dances uh, I, I didn't go to homecoming the way other people did. I went with one friend one time. 
I didn't go to prom. I didn't do any of that stuff. There were no girlfriends. There were no notes that were being passed. Um, there were no long walks on a warm summer night. None of that stuff, right? No mixtapes. That wasn't until college. Um, but what's interesting is, you know, none of that stuff was actually an inclination of, of, or a, a representation of my romantic inclinations. Actually, as a kid, I, I think I had all those same feelings. I think I was just like everybody else. Um, and just like every other kid my age, I, 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 I kind of wondered about all that stuff. But for me, I knew the power of the word no. I, I knew the power of, of rejection. And I knew the risk in me asking. I just understood that deeply. My racing heart, my, my sweaty palms, all of that stuff just led to me making the decision that I couldn't stand the risk, and so I would never ask. Because no meant, if someone said no to me, that meant, well, you, you, you rejected me as a person. That would hurt my identity. If you said no to me, that would mean if we were friends, things would never be the same again after that. If you, I mean, you're already living in awkwardness in junior high and high school. And if, and if you said no to me, that just meant like a, an eternity of awkward in my mind. Because if I ask, if I risk, I put you in control. You have the power. So, so when you make a move, when anyone makes a move towards another person, we are putting the control in their hands. When I make a move towards my wife, the control is in her hands whether or not she will love me back. And me loving her means me relinquishing that control. When we move towards another person, we put the power in that person's hand. They can say yes or they can say no. No. This, this is true from junior high dances to marriage proposals to inviting someone to church on Christmas Eve. Any invitation is an invitation to hear someone say no. And if you've ever heard someone say no, then you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? There's this interesting scene in the second chapter of Song of Solomon. If you have a Bible, turn there real quick. It's on your device or in the Pew Bible with you. Um, Song of Solomon, chapter 2. You didn't see that coming, did you? <laughs> Like Christmas message, Song of Solomon. Some of you that don't know Song of Solomon, you should check it out sometime. But uh, Song of Solomon chapter 2, Song of Solomon is really interesting because it's the story of two lovers, um, but it's also an allegory for God's relationship with us. So really interesting, beautiful stuff in here. But, but there's this scene in the second chapter where a woman sees her lover, whom she calls her beloved, and he's coming towards her. And, and this is what we read in, in, starting in verse 8. She says, listen. She can hear his footsteps. She says, listen, my beloved, look, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. Here he comes. He's coming towards me. When he makes it to her house, he can't get in. And so in, in verse 9, she says, it says this, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. Uh, in the days that these lines were written, um, these two individuals would have likely been teenagers. When she talks about our wall, she's talking about the walls of her family home, uh, a home that would have held not just her immediate family, but probably extended generations. There is this place where her parents live. She lives under their roof. Her brothers and father, they probably defend her. This is the kind of home she lives in. She's cared for in this place. Her life is safe. Her life is predictable. Everything is good here. And the young man comes, and he's outside. He's on the other side of the wall, and there she is on the inside with this life. And then verse 10 says this, My beloved spoke, and he said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. What's he doing? He's inviting her to a new life, a life with him. And then he continues in verse 11, see the winter is past, the rains are over and gone, flowers appear on the earth, the, sign, the, the season of singing has come, the cooing of doves is heard in our land. You know a guy's in love when he talks about the cooing of doves, right? 
The fig tree forms its early fruit. The blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. He's pointing to this expression of spring. The flowers are breaking out. The fig trees are getting their fruit. The, the, the rains have stopped. He's saying, do you realize this, this life that's burgeoning around us, this could be us. This could be our story. There's adventure. There's life. There's opportunity. There's, there's fruitfulness that could come from our life together. And he's inviting her. He's saying, come join me in this. He's saying, come be a part of this life with me. Leave your life behind those walls and come do life with me. And the question is left for her, does she leave? Will she accept his invitation? Does she walk through that doorway in the wall and into a life that's unknown and unpredictable? Will she leave the safety of family and friends, the protection of those that are closest to her? And what if it doesn't work out? What if he's not who he says he is? What, what, if, what if this all blows up in her face? Do you see the power that she has over him in this moment? She can say yes, and she can say no. And if she says no, he's heartbroken. Isn't it universal, that, that feeling of, of, of heartbrokenness? Isn't that a universal thing? How many of you experienced heart, being heartbroken before? Okay, there's like four honest people in the room. <laughs> I never heartbroken. I, I only ever love one person. They're sitting right next to me right now. That's it, right? No, we've been heartbroken. It's universal because it's not just about lovers. It's about parents and children, right? Being heartbroken, extending yourself towards another person. It, it's, about, it's about friends who get hurt by friends. You've extended yourself in that way. Being, being heartbroken is, is when brothers and sisters do things to wound the relationship. There's that kind of being heartbroken. It's business partners who part, way. we, part ways. We, we give each other to other people, give ourselves to each other, other people, and we experience heartache when they reject us. It's universal. But why? Because love is universal. And in order for love to be anything genuine, it means we are extending ourselves to another person and putting the control in their hands. Could it be that there is more to this struggle that you and I have with love than meets the eye? Could it be that this is actually about something else? We were made to love and be loved and to even be known for being loving to other people. It's hardwired into us. But handing your heart to someone and taking the risk that they will hand it back is a risk that most of us don't want to take. We don't want to be crushed. We don't want to lose. This is where I think we find the power in Advent. This is where I believe we find the power in the story of Christmas. Because the Bible, the larger story of the Bible, when you think about this, it opens up with, with God making people and actually giving them freedom, freedom to choose, freedom to love him or to choose not to love him. God actually puts the ball in our court. And people consistently, if you read the Bible, they consistently choose to not love God. In fact, the Bible actually says in the early pages that God's heart ached, that he had created humanity because of their rejection of him. Like his heart broke. Repeatedly it reveals this theme of God taking the risk, moving towards people in love, only to have people reject him. In fact, for some of us, this might be an entirely new perspective of who God is, right? A God who's heartbroken because of our rejection. We think of God as a judge, we think of God as a creator, we think of God as a warrior, but do we think of God as a lover who gives us Song of Solomon to show us how he feels about us? 
See, the story of the Bible tells the story of a living God who loves and continues to love even when that love is not returned. He just continues. He is love. And so he keeps pressing towards us. He's a God who refuses to override our freedom, a God who respects our power to decide, a God who lets us make the next move. That's who he is. But why does he do this? He does this relentlessly because he knows what this thing we're dealing with is really all about. He knows what the adolescent dances are all about. He knows what the Hollywood, Hollywood depicted movies and the, the, the well-crafted romance novels, he knows what those things are stirring inside of us. He, he, he knows the frustrations of love lost. He understands that as humanity, we are on this constant search, and so he continually shows up at our wall saying, will you say yes to this life with me? Will you choose the love that I'm offering you? He says there's something deeper, there's something more, there's something powerful. And that's what you're actually looking for. Think about that for just a second. If you're God and you want to express yourself and show your love to this humanity that you've created, if that's your desire, if you want them in a very definitive way to know your love for them, how do you do that? How do you show up? I mean, he shows up in the Old Testament to Moses and Moses gets pretty freaked out, right? So what do you do? How do you connect with people in a manner that wouldn't scare them off, but would actually compel them, would draw their attention closer so that they would see you? What would you do to draw them to a point where they would actually look at you and know you? Would you come as a child? Would you come as a child who is submitted to the forces around it? A child who has to be dependent on parents? Is that what you would do? To show, to draw people in and say, this is who I am. Would you just look at me? See, that's the story. That's the story of, of Christmas. That's what's at the heart of this whole thing, that Jesus, he's born to these teenage parents in questionable circumstances. That's how the story begins. You just sort of lean in. You start to look. Here's this child, and he's, he's in the straw of a stable. He's placed in a feeding trough. That's how the story begins. It just draws us in. We're just looking like, who is this person, right? This person, like, what is he showing us? And then as we begin to see him interact with human beings, who does he identify with? Well, he hangs out with the people who aren't good enough, the people who aren't clean enough, the people who aren't wealthy enough, the people who aren't pure enough to be a part of the establishment. That's who we see him drawing towards. We see him hanging out in people's homes that were rejected by the religious establishment. He's eating meals with them. We see Jesus touching people with diseases that are easily spread. We see him having conversations with women that have been caught in adultery by himself in the desert, talking to a promiscuous lady. All these different things. All these people rejected by culture. And all the while, what is God doing is just drawing our attention and saying, do you want to see who I am? Do you want to see what I'm all about? This whole thing is him pulling our attention to himself, that he lives his life in flesh and blood towards humanity in a way that shows us love. Ultimately, he does that by the choice that he makes for us. There's this one day when Jesus is talking to his disciples. They, they're already just drawn in, right? Their, their focus is on him. And then Jesus looks at them one, one day, they're, they're talking, and he says, greater love has no man than this, that he laid on his life for his friends. Like I've already drawn your attention to here because I'm just going to go one step further. And there will be no doubt in your mind that the God of the universe loves you unconditionally. Jesus puts himself on the cross so that we would know the love of God. 
So when Jesus comes to town, when Jesus shows up in Bethlehem, love shows up in Bethlehem. And this longing that you and I have for acceptance, this universal desire that we all have for for love, all of that is fulfilled in him. He's the only one who can answer the deepest desire that we have for love. He's the only one that can fill the space that's in our hearts. No one else and nothing else can ever fill that the way that he does. And what we see is God, again, just making the first move and saying, you're in control. I'm going to risk. Will you receive my love? Will you say yes to my love? In describing what God did, John, in chapter 3, verse 16 of his gospel, said it so clearly and simply. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. Maybe the reason I love Octi is that my daughter gave something she loved to me to show me that she loved me. And maybe the reason that we love Jesus is that God gave us Jesus to show us his great love for us. And, and, and love comes first, and there's a reason why. Here it is. When you experience genuine love, you become a loving force in the world. That's why love comes first. When I experience love and when you experience love at its core, when you and I understand that the God of the universe loves you unconditionally, when that happens, you become a force of love in the world. You're no longer needing it from other people. You're no longer striving for it in other places. You become like this sponge that is filled up. You won't be desperate. You won't be mopping up every desperate attempt to feel or experience love. Now you will be filled with love and your life will be squeezed out and out of you will be love poured out on the people around you. That's the beauty of the gospel. See, if I fail to be, to be loving to people around me, if I fail to be the kind of person who chooses love, it's not because God stopped loving me. Usually this is the case for me. It's usually because I've taken my eyes off of what he's done for me. Because I can't look at the birth of Jesus, I can't look at the cross of Christ and not be reminded of the love that God has For me, when I see those things, it draws me back to a place. I become secure, I become a person of peace, and I can exhibit love unconditionally to those around me. There's this old hymn that I remember singing when I was a kid. Um, It used to go like this. It used to say, love rescued me, love rescued me, when nothing else could help, love rescued rescued me. Love rescues, doesn't it? Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? Would you pray? I'm going to pray, and then we're going to close with a song, and then I'll offer the benediction. But let's pray first. Well, Lord, this morning, um, I'm probably not the only one in the room that's aware of all the ways I've tried to feel affection, feel love from other people, other things, and all the while missing the love that you offer. Lord, for some of us, this morning is an opportunity to just be reminded that 
this birth of this baby is the greatest statement of your move towards us in history. And maybe it's just a reminder that gets us back in this place and we just simply hear you say, you're loved. For others in the room, Lord, there might be those that this morning, it's the first time they've ever really understood that you are a God who loves us and that saying yes to Jesus means saying yes to your love and receiving that. So whether that's us or whether we're just being reminded, Lord, this morning, we want to say yes to you. We want to say yes to the love that you have for us. And we want to be the kind of people who are so impacted and influenced by your love that we can't help but give that love, offer that love, extend that love to those around us every day. Thank you, Jesus. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. And as you go today and into the next couple of days of celebrating the birth of Christ, I offer this benediction to you. May you be men and women who see all of the places and all of the ways you have looked for a love that could only ultimately be found in Jesus. And may your heart be open and may you receive that love from him and may you become a conduit of the love of God in all of the places that he has placed you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Love you guys so much. Thanks for being here today. Have an amazing, amazing next couple of days. We'll see you hopefully at a Christmas Eve service. If not, we'll see you next Sunday. See you later.